Welcome back to Mathetai Podcast. This is Mike. Uh, we are working our way through the Gospel of Luke. We have come up to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Thus far, let's review where we've been. We've seen in verses 1 through 4 why Luke is writing this. He's writing to this individual Theophilus. Uh, he's writing about uh, the things that he's been taught. But he's writing for the purpose that you may have certainty. And our goal here as we're studying the Gospel of Luke is that we can be certain about what we know about Christ, what we've learned about Christ, the historicity and the truthfulness of the life of Christ and what that means for our faith. And then he gets in in verses uh, 5 through 24, which we covered in our last episode uh, when we went through the Gospel of Luke here. And we saw that John the Baptist is described. We're looking at the birth of the forerunner to the Messiah. We went back to Malachi and saw the prophecies that were given there about the one that would come before the Messiah himself. And we saw the great family that he's born into. And what we're going to see today is a comparison between the birth of Jesus and the birth of John the Baptist. Because Jesus is born into a very unique family as well, in a very unique condition, fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. And the two births parallel themselves quite uh, plainly here, as we're going to see today, uh, when we look at the life of Mary and what uh, has happened in her life with the life of Zacharias and Elizabeth, uh, the parents of John the Baptist. Now, uh, just to start this section, in verse 26 of chapter 1, it says, In the sixth month. Now, this ties together the birth of John with the birth of Jesus. Because the only time marker we have here is the, uh, the pregnancy of Elizabeth. So, in the sixth month of Mary's pregnancy is what this is describing. And uh, later on, we'll see that a little bit more uh, up in verse 36. <clears throat> that... Um, this is the, the pregnancy of, of Elizabeth, so we're tying together the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. And there's a lot of language that's mirrored between those two accounts as well. Uh, in verses 5 through, 30, uh, 5 through 25, and then verses 26 through 38, which we'll be going through today. Uh, first of all, some of the, the mirrored language. In verse 12, it talks about Zechariah, he was troubled. Uh, and then in verse 28, it talks about Mary being much troubled as well. In verse 13, the angel says to Zechariah. Verse 30, the angel says to Mary. Verse 13, again, the angel's message was, do not be afraid. Verse 30, the angel's message to Mary is, do not be afraid. In verse 13, uh, the message to Zechariah was, you, uh, uh, your wife will bear you a son. And then in verse 31, the message to Mary is that you will bear a son. In verse 13, it gives uh, the angel gives instruction that you will name him. You will name your son a certain name. And again with Mary in verse 31, uh, you will name him. You're going to name your son uh, Jesus. And in verse 15, it talks about John the Baptist, that he will be great. In verse 32, it talks about Jesus, that he will be great. In the verse 18, uh, the response of Zechariah that he says back to the angel. In verse 34, Mary speaks back to the angel. And then verse 19, the angel replies back to Zechariah. In verse 35, the angel replies back to Mary. And then in verse 19, it says, uh, my name is Gabriel, whom God has sent. And then in verse 26, speaking of Mary, it says, this is Gabriel sent of God. And then finally, in verse 20, it talks about, and now following this, this is what's going to happen. In verse 36, it goes on talking about, and now uh, speaking about what's coming forward as well. Now, 
Those are some similarities between these two passages. We see a very clear mirroring of the events, of the language, of the description of things that happened there. But we do see some significant differences as well. Okay, and I want to highlight those before we get into our passage today. First of all, in uh, the account of John the Baptist's birth with his parents Zacharias and Elizabeth, we see that Elizabeth, Elizabeth has a very real need. This is expressed three times in verse 7, in the beginning, in the end of verse 7, and again in verse 18. And the need is her barrenness. Elizabeth is old and she has no child. And as we went through that, we saw that that was a sign of displeasure from the Lord. It was almost a curse from the people to, to uh, be barren and have no child. And so three times that's reiterated to us in, about her barrenness, about her need. In contrast to that, we see that Mary, uh, in the passage we'll be going through today, has no need. Mary is a, uh, uh, a wonderful young woman who has no apparent need. Her virginity is asserted three times that she is a pure young woman following the Lord and living out Jewish life appropriately. In verse 27, at the beginning and end of verse 27, and again in verse 34, her virginity, her purity is expressed and reiterated. So Elizabeth contrasted to Mary, an older woman of great need compared to a younger woman with no apparent real need, but of great purity. We also have some uh, descriptions of the children that are being born, John the Baptist <coughs> and Jesus, that they're very similar. They're both going to be great. Um, they're both uh, filled with the Spirit. They're both uh, work of God, a miraculous birth from God. But we see that Jesus far outdistances John in that. It says that John is going to be spilled with, uh, filled with the Spirit from the womb, while Jesus himself is conceived by the Spirit. And that uh, Jesus is going to save the people from their sins, and John is going to simply be great among the people and do a work among them. So uh, Jesus is just uh, contrasted to John in that he is the greater, more important child coming there. A couple other things. John's annunciation, the announcement of his birth, is centered in the temple itself. It's the heart of Jewish worship. It's the sacred place. Zechariah was in there performing the service, uh, performing the ritual there of offering incense before the Lord when he was told about uh, the birth of Jesus. So it centers on the Jewish world itself. Uh, showing the sacredness and tying it into the Old Testament. This was the life of the Jewish people, which was housed in the Old Testament. Now, <coughs> Jesus is announced in a different way. He's announced in a small town called Nazareth. This, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Nazareth today, but it's a, a small, insignificant, unknown place. It was distanced from the temple. It's separated from uh, the Old Testament practice, signaling a change, a difference in God's focus there. And then finally, Zechariah is a devout priest with impeccable character. So John's father was uh, an incredible man we see there. Uh, and he's been given an incredible favor in that, that uh, section where we, we learned about the birth of John <clears throat> or the announcement of John's birth. And this, this devout priest with incredible character shown favor by God responds to the announcement with disbelief. And therefore, he was given the sign that he would be mute until the day that this was fulfilled. Mary, on the other hand, is a young girl. We'll talk about today. She's probably in her teens. She was, she was very young, um, no, no real notoriety, uh, probably a, a wonderful, young, faithful Jewish girl, but, but not a priest serving in the temple, not having a developed character, not any of that stuff. But she, 
demonstrates faith and great humility by accepting God's plan and submitting herself to it. So the contrast of John's father, Zechariah, who uh, disbelieved the plan of God versus Mary, who accepted and ran full force with the plan of God. So some great uh, contrast and comparison between the the announcement of the birth of John and the announcement of the birth of Jesus that we're going to see today to keep in mind uh, as we go through this. Now, let me read just the first couple of verses here, uh, verses 26 through 33, and then we'll break it apart a bit. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now we talked about the time frame in the sixth month there, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's announcement of her uh, conception of John. Now this angel Gabriel is being sent to another person. Now the angel Gabriel is an, an important figure here for this purpose. When we see Gabriel in scripture, it's usually a reference to an eschatological uh, announcement. When we say eschatological announcement, we mean an end times, a futuristic prophetical announcement. We see him uh, going to Zechariah, speaking about John the Baptist, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises of a forerunner to the Messiah, uh, of uh, one coming in the spirit of Elijah. Uh, We found that in Malachi. Uh, We see uh, Gabriel appearing in the book of Daniel, giving prophetical insights into future end time events and laying out God's divine plan for human history there. So Gabriel seems to be an angel of uh, significant purpose in delivering the plan of God for future events and bringing these eschatological messages. And so when he comes to Mary, there's a sense or an indication here that there's something significant coming to play. There's there's an, an important event historically and in God's plan that's about to take place. So it's no... Uh, small measure that this was Gabriel coming. And it says that he was sent from God. This is a divinely dispatched dispatched message. Uh, It's not a generic message. It's not a general message to the church. It's not a general encouragement or or a reiteration of the word of God. This is a specific message that God had planned here. He's a divinely dispatched angel from God himself. And he comes to the city of Galilee, uh, named Nazareth. So it's a small city, uh, a town in the region of Galilee, which was in the northern portion of Israel. Now the town of Nazareth itself, let's talk about the setting a little bit here. Nazareth itself is at the southern end of the Lebanon mountains. So as you come out of the Lebanon mountains, you would come uh, to the city of Nazareth before coming out of the mountains into the plains. So it sits right at the uh, the, the junction between those two areas. Uh, to the north uh, of the uh, Esdralon Plains is where it's sitting there. It's a secluded village. It, it kind of lies in a basin. The mountains are, uh, surround them. There's limestone hills all around the sides. 
And uh, it, it said that it, these rise around it like the edge of a shell that guard it from intrusion. So if you can imagine a, a kind of a scooped out portion of land down in the basin with mountains on all sides, and that's where Nazareth sits is inside that basin. Now, if you were to come up out of the basin and stand on the edge of those cliffs and you look to the north, you could see the plateaus of Zebulon and Naphtali. Um, and then the mountains of Lebanon would be up to the north there. And that includes uh, Mount Hermon, uh, covered with snow that would tower above all of those as you look to the north. If you look to the west, you would be able to see the coast of Tyre and the blue waters of the Mediterranean Sea sitting out there. So you would be able to see uh, uh, the approximate uh, 20 miles or so out to the sea there. You would be able to view that. Um, you could look and you could see Mount Carmel, where Elijah struggled with the prophets of Baal. So a lot of the biblical accounts come there. And then if you turn and you look to the south, you would see Megiddo and the whole plain of Estrelon where um, the, the battles of Israel would have taken place. And you could see Tabor and the hills of Geboa where Saul and Jonathan were killed. Uh, Mount Ebal and the land of Shechem uh, were in the back there. And the uplands, you could see Gilead and Samaria from there. So you could see the land of Israel from all of this area. If you look to the east, you would be looking across the Sea of Galilee and across the Jordan Valley. You would see Gilead and uh, Tabor and the mountains of Bashan. Um, so incredible viewpoint of the land of Israel from this town that he's born. Now, Nazareth being a small town kind of hidden in this basin, insignificant and unknown, but yet it, it actually had a prominent place. It was actually a fairly wealthy town. There were people living there that, that were merchants that brought in great money. It was along the main Roman road into Jerusalem from north to south. And so there were um, numerous building projects around the area as well that Herod Antipas was working on. And so a number of the people in town were merchants and skilled craftsmen that could have been employed by Herod in, in these building projects. They were along the Roman road, so they would have had great international exposure, money coming in from all around, and great trade going on through this place. So it's a, it's a town that, that kind of straddles between the northern region, which was viewed as rural and ignorant and backwards, compared to the southern region where Jerusalem sits, where the seat of power and knowledge would have rested. You would have looked at those in the north as, as uneducated, ignorant folk. And then those in the south would have been uh, more up on the, uh, the trends of the day, the intellectual movements of the day, the finances. It would have all been centered there. And so Nazareth kind of borders between the two, but is identified with those in the north because it's of Galilee, which is to the north. But you could see all of Israel, great perspective over the land that God had given to the people. And it's there that we find Jesus being born. It's there that we have uh, Jesus' story beginning uh, on this earth, is that you've got a perfect perspective of the nation of Israel, both the rich and prosperous South, as well as what was considered the backwards and uneducated North. And they all find their meeting roads there in Nazareth. So it's a, an interesting place there. And it says in verse 27 that, that Gabriel is sent to this city of Nazareth to a specific person. He says it's to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Now, this is important because the term there, to a virgin, the, the Greek word used is parthenos. It's used 15 times in the New Testament. You know, Matthew 1.23 talks about this when Matthew's giving his account of the annunciation of the birth of, of Jesus. Um, this is in reference to Mary here as well. In Matthew 25, 
It's used in verse 1, 7, and 11, and it refers to the parable of the ten virgins. And that parable only works with unmarried, uh, pure women that are faithful. Uh, in Acts 21, verse 9, it, refor- it refers to the four unmarried daughters who were prophesying. And so it, it implies their purity before God to have the gift of prophecy and to be able to be used by God in that way. And then it's used multiple times in 1 Corinthians 7, where it contrasts a young woman who is uh, unmarried to the woman who is married, that an unattached woman to the married woman. And so we all know that 1 Corinthians 7 being the, the passage talking about relationships. And again, the, the implication there is, is that if you are an unmarried woman, you are pure and restraining yourself from sexual impurity. And so uh, the implication is that you're a virgin. And then in 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul is speaking of presenting the church betrothed to Christ and presenting the church as a virgin. We wouldn't want to present a church that has been stained uh, by sexual immorality. And so uh, the virgin state of the church is very important in that passage. And then finally, the use of this passage in Revelation 14.4, it speaks of those who God sanctifies for the end times, that there are 144,000 members of Uh, uh, the nation of Israel, the tribes of Israel, that are set aside and sanctified, and there are those who have not defiled themselves with women. And so the use of this term, although it could mean simply an unmarried person, it implies, either directly or indirectly, it implies the purity of the individual. And so for Mary here in this case, that she is uh, a virgin in this case, she is a, a young woman unmarried at this point, and she would have been implied, it's implied here that she was pure or a virgin or chaste or unknown uh, in sexual intimacy. Now, <clears throat> this passage here comes from a deeper passage. We've got to go back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, to see where this is originally used. And Isaiah is giving a, a specific prophecy in his time uh, to his current situation there. Let's let's read this. I'm going to pick up in verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 7. It says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. So deep as their idea of hell or high as heaven itself. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? And therefore, here's what happens. Isaiah is giving this prophecy to Ahaz about uh, the battle and what they need to do and and all of these sort of things and what God is going to do for them. And he says in verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. You won't ask for a sign. You won't ask for the Lord to do something to prove himself on your behalf and to show his favor to you. The Lord is going to give it to you whether you want it or not. And here's the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, there's certainly uh, an immediate fulfillment in the life of Isaiah there. But as we look at this passage, the, the reference here is more indicative of a future fulfillment. Okay, In Isaiah 7, 14, the word used for virgin is Alma. And it's a Hebrew word. It literally means a young maiden. It's used seven times in the Hebrew scriptures. And again, it doesn't specifically speak of virginity, but every time it implies the purity of the young woman. In Genesis 24, 43, this is describing the search for the wife of Isaac. 
And as they find Rebecca, they call her Alma. She is an Alma. She is a young, unmarried woman. Now, no Jew in their right mind, no writer of the biblical text, Isaiah himself, would want to imply that Rebecca was an unfaithful woman or an impure woman, sexually speaking. (laughs) So the word Alma for Rebecca, the wife of the patriarch Isaac, uh, indicates that she was pure and fitting and appropriate for Isaac, uh, the inheritor of the promises of God. And again, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 8, we have a young child here, uh, the one that goes out to find the child Moses and to find his mother that she would feed him and care for him on behalf of uh, Pharaoh's daughter. And so we know this to be his sister Miriam. But again, she's a young child. Speaking of her purity and her innocence at that time, she was too young to be married and to have those relationships. Uh, and we wouldn't want to speak of the sister of Moses, the family of Moses as being impure in those sort of ways. In Psalm 68, 25, uh, describing the procession into the sanctuary of God, there are those who would play the tambourines, and they were described as young maidens or virgins, because those who are uh, partaking in this procession and worshiping God needed to be pure and righteous. And so therefore, these young unmarried women playing the tambourines, it was implied, would be virgins. In Psalm 30, verse 19, We uh, have the discussion of a relationship between a man with his maiden, with his young woman, that it's only appropriate to have that that faithful, pure relationship there. So again, the purity of the young maiden is highlighted in that. And then finally, in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 3, and chapter 6, verse 8, we have the description of these young virgins, these young women that are friends of the bride in that that passage, that, uh, again, they're... Uh, Their singleness, their faithfulness, their purity is on highlight. And so it would be indicative of this word Alma speaking of a pure young maiden with the purity being implied in that sense. Now, let's go a little bit deeper into this. That the most common term used for woman in the the general sense was enosh, which refers to any mortal, any, any woman there, or nashim, which is often translated wife and is associated with married women. So, for example, Exodus 21.3 uses that word there. Now, if Isaiah is talking about his wife in this prophecy, which the prophecy seems to indicate that there is a woman who is going to have a child, if he's talking about his wife, which could be the context of Isaiah 7, then he would have used one of those terms, probably Nashim to talk about his wife, or uh, he used a different term in chapter 8, verse 3, Nebiah, or the prophetess, which means the prophet's wife. So he would have used those terms as he did use it in the very next chapter to speak of his own wife. He would not have picked a term that was associated with a young unmarried woman to speak of his very own married wife. And so um, <clears throat> that the term itself, Alma, as well. So in context, it seems to fit best that it's not Isaiah's wife we're talking about. Uh, the best indication means a young, unmarried, faithfully, Uh, sexually pure woman. Now, the term itself, many are going to argue that it's not the best option. It only implies uh, that this person's a a virgin, but it specifically speaks of a young woman. And so it, it could certainly mean a young woman who's even married itself. But however, 
when we look at the development of language, I know we're going to spend a lot of time on this term because this term is very important. In fact, the next study we're going to do on this is going to be a focus on the virgin birth of Christ and the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ and why that is so important. So listen to that coming out next here. Um, but as we develop, look at the development of language, Hebrew is a Semitic language. It comes from the family of Semitic language, and it comes from the further root of what they call the Ugaritic form. Now, this was the form that was present in those days. And if we look at the development of the Ugaritic language as it grows into and splinters out into the Hebrew language, then we see that this term implies and, and speaks specifically about virginity. Now, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, it's the Jewish translation made uh, in Alexandria, Egypt, before Christianity. So this is, you know, 200, 300 years before Christ is when the Septuagint was formed. And the readers, the Jewish readers at that time, read Alma to mean virgin. Their concept of Alma was virginity. And so they translated the New Testament, they translated it into that word uh, that we use there for a virgin, uh, Parthenos, in verse 27, that we have virginity expressed explicitly here. And so we have this translation going back through this. So 2,700 years later, we still want to impose that linguistic technique, the, uh, the translation from all the way back in the Ugaritic times through the Hebrew language with the word Alma, through the translation of that into the Greek understanding of the concept, Parthenos, meaning virgin. This is a, a young woman who does not have a man. Uh, one final example with this, the, there's an Ugarit text from around 1400 B.C., uh, that is celebrating the marriage of, you know, this is a religious text from them, so obviously it's not a historical text, but it's celebrating the marriage of, uh, of uh, male and female lunar deities. So they're worshiping God and they're seeing male and female portions of this. And it's there. there's a prediction that the goddess will bear a son. And, and the language there, the terminology is very close to Isaiah 7, 14. In fact, some have even argued that Isaiah is stealing this concept from that religious practice there. However, uh, in, in the Ugaritic statement, uh, it's that the bride is going to bear a son. And it fortunately gives us this parallel form there. She's called by the exact word in the Ugaritic form that Alma is in the Hebrew form. And it's the exact counterpart equating the two terms. So speaking of her as a virgin, pure and chaste, uh, uh, it's, she's unmarried at the time that she's going to have the son, but then she's going to be married later. And so the New Testament rendering this word Alma as Parthenos, meaning virgin, actually rests in the oldest Jewish translations that we have. Um, and so for us to uh, put it into this format, for us to say that she was a virgin, rests on good linguistic data, rests on good historical data, and we'll dig in even deeper next time. Uh, take that last five minutes or whatever it was as just a uh, uh, something to whet your appetite for the importance of the virgin birth of Jesus and why it's so important that we argue that out. It's vital to the nature of Jesus to the identity of Jesus and what Jesus does for us, that he is virgin born. And we'll talk more about that. But nevertheless, the text tells us, verse 27, back to the text, that she is a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Now, the idea of betrothal, it could start up to a year before the marriage itself. And there was a promise. They were promised to one another in marriage, which means that in that time, they were legally wed. 
even though the wedding ceremony hadn't taken place. And so uh, if there was infidelity or uh, any sexual uh, immoral practice that would have gone on, it would have been a form of adultery in the mind of the people there. And it could have been uh, punished through the practice of death or certainly by being put away, as we see Joseph. If you read in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph means to put her aside quietly to divorce her because he's already been promised and betrothed to her. So uh, there was a legal binding uh, account with her already. And then Joseph, we see Joseph is of the house of David, which is very important because Jesus is going to see, as we come to the end of this passage, he's going to take the throne of David. He's a descendant of David in that sense. So his biological mother is going to marry a man from the lineage of David, which would be very important for that fulfillment. We're going to see that in just a little bit. And again, if you go back to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter one tracks the lineage of uh, Joseph, tracks him all the way back to David, places him within that uh, specific uh, chronological uh, genealogical family itself, which was vital for the Messiah to be in that. All right. So the angel comes, comes to Mary in Nazareth and says, and the virgin's name was Mary. Okay, Miriam. Now we've got to distinguish this Mary from some of the other Marys of the New Testament. This is not uh, Mary uh, Salome. This is not uh, uh, Mary Magdalene. This is a unique young girl, Mary, that's different from those others there. She's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now verse 29, <clears throat> it says, and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, the idea that he came to her, it's literally he entered in. He, he entered into her room. He entered into her life. He, he encroached upon her. It, it wasn't that he stood afar off. It wasn't some esoteric message. This is the idea of someone coming in through the doorway to greet another person and to have fellowship and interaction with them. So there's a, a, a very real interaction between Mary and the angel going on here. It's not a dream. It's not a feeling in her heart. It's not any of those things. This is a full interaction there. And his message there, first of all, he says, greetings. And it's literally, it's the statement of simply, be glad, rejoice, celebrate. This is a wonderful thing I'm bringing to you. I'm bringing to you wonderful news, Mary. Rejoice over this. And then he calls her this name. He says, oh, favored one. Now, the, the idea of this is the word sheratu. We get our word charis, meaning grace. And here we've got, she's been compassed with favor or honored with blessings. She's been given great grace from the Lord. Uh, some have rendered this term full of grace. And, uh, you know, a lot of doctrine has developed out of that. This word karatu uh, is used here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, where it talks about being full of grace. And... <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6 says this. It says, To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. So we are encompassed with his grace, with his favor. There it's translated grace specifically in Ephesians 1, 6. Now here, Mary is called the one that is favored, full of grace, uh, given this special endowment from heaven. Now, the Catholic Church has taken this doctrine of Mary and said that since she is full of grace, since she is encompassed with favor and honored with all of these blessings, she has the ability to dole out grace to others. And that the idea that 
she has unmerited favor from God and is able to now pass that favor out. And so people look to Mary to be a dispenser of grace. But that was never the intention here. Mary is not one who dispenses grace to others. But as this passage even indicates that she is a recipient of grace. God has bestowed this grace upon her. God has given this to her. Not that she is the creator and dispenser of grace or that God has given her enough, enough grace to pass out to anybody else. God has given her grace and chosen her for this special task. So she's favored. She's a favored one. And why is she favored? Well, it answers it for us. Because the Lord is with you. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. You're, you're, you're favored because the presence of God is real in your life. There is a real specific presence of God that not everybody possesses. In the Old Testament, uh, the, the presence of God was something that was unique. It dwelt in the temple between the cherubim's wings there on the ark in the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest could enter in. And on special occasions, the presence of God would be manifested through his spirit to empower certain individuals for certain tasks. We see there uh, when Moses was overwhelmed with the responsibilities of leading the people, that there were 70 men that were chosen to assist Moses in that task. And they were chosen be, and given grace and given that favor by God to do that. And so the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking in tongues. Well, the problem at that time was that only 68 were there with Moses. Two of them were out amongst the people. And as those two were empowered by God for the special task, given that favor or grace and the presence of the Lord with them in a special way, as they spoke in tongues, the other people said, you need to stop. That's not appropriate. <laughs> and so not everybody had the favor of God, the presence of God. It was unique and designated for certain people for certain purposes. Now, certainly Mary is needing this grace, needing the presence of God in order to fulfill the task that God has called her for. God has called her in order to bring forth his son. And so the Lord's with you. You are chosen by God for a specific task. So you're favored. You're full of grace. Now at this time, you know, Mary, it says, uh, <clears throat> had not entered in with Joseph. Uh, she had not taken his name and not joined his family, had not consummated the marriage. And so therefore she was not fully a part of this. Uh, she, she was still trying to figure out how all this works. And so um, it, it's a surprise to Mary that this is coming to her. And so in verse 28, it gives us her initial response. She says, but she was greatly troubled of the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. In other words, she's, she's still a little bit unsure of what's going on. Why am I favored? Why is grace given to me? Who am I? I have nothing to offer. And she's trying to grasp why she would be chosen and just what she's chosen for. Why is Gabriel standing here speaking to me? And she would have been baffled just as any of us would have been. And now we're going to see Gabriel explain himself. <coughs> and the angel said to her in verse 30, do not be afraid. Now, now that first statement there indicates that Mary might have had a little hesitation. Wait, you're coming here and saying these incredible things. Who am I and just what are you going to ask of me? I'm not quite sure about this. So don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
So God's chosen you. You're doing the right things. You're on the right account. And God wants to do something incredible with you. So don't be afraid of this. Don't be afraid of God's plan for your life. And that's something that we could say for ourselves. Don't be afraid of the favor of God in your life. As you're pursuing him and seeking him and he begins to open doors and do things with you, don't be afraid of what God has for you. But realize it's from the hand of God and it's good. It may be difficult. It may be unpopular. But don't be afraid of this because God's doing a work. In verse 31, he begins to explain exactly what God wants to do. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So now Jesus is going to be born. Mary is going to conceive, she's going to bear, and she's going to name a son. That's Mary's job. And she's got to cooperate with God because God is going to do something now. Mary needs to uh, submit herself in conception and uh, bearing a son and naming him Jesus. That's Mary's end. And the verse 32 and 33 gives us God's end that he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So, The futuristic eschatological consequences are spelled out in these verses. The prophetical consequences of this greeting, of this meeting between Mary and Gabriel, between the work of God and the life of Mary are spelled out. The son that Mary needs to submit to conceiving and bearing is going to have a special name. First of all, let's start with the name. This is the name Jesus. It's a derivative of Joshua. Yeshua, or the Lord is my salvation, sometimes translated Yahweh saves. And the idea of this is that that Jesus is involved in salvation. This is reiterated from chapters 1 and 2 all the way through this, throughout the whole account of the, uh, the, the Annunciation and the birth and the origination of the person of Jesus. The salvation mission of Christ is reiterated. It's the first time in human history, if you think about this, that Messiah has been given a name. In the Old Testament, he had been prophesied. It's something that everyone looked forward to. In Hebrews, it tells us that the angels desired to look into this. And for the first time in human history, the Messiah has a name. Jesus, God saves. The Lord is my salvation. And so it was a meaningful, deep name. It was a name that would have meant a lot to the Jewish people, thinking back to Joshua, bringing the people in, out of their slavery under that Moses redeemed them from, and then bringing them into the promised land. Yahweh saves, and Yahweh blesses them with that promised land. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, in Matthew's parallel account, Uh, The angel Gabriel goes to Joseph at that case and tells Joseph what to do. Because if Joseph were caught up in the situation and Mary comes to him and simply says, Hey, I'm, I'm pregnant. And guess what? It's God's baby. The Holy Spirit came. Joseph probably wouldn't have received that. <laughs> so Joseph needed special instruction. And so Joseph is given that and he's told that your wife or, or, or your, your betrothed Mary is, is with child. It's a child of the Holy Spirit. Accept this. They're going to name the child Jesus, and it tells why the name Jesus there, for he will save his people from their sins. The mission of Jesus is to bring redemption, and that's presented throughout the whole of the New Testament, and it's there indicative and present in his naming at the very beginning. So not only that, you're going to, you're going to conceive, bear, and name this child Jesus, and then God's part, the son is going to be great. Your son, he's not going to be like the others. He's going to be great. John the Baptist will be great because the power of 
God will be upon him. The Holy Spirit's going to work through him. But your son, Mary, is going to be great. So great, in fact, that he's going to be called the Son of the Most High or the Son of God. Now, throughout Scripture, people kept coming to Jesus saying, Are you the one? Are you who we're waiting for? And Jesus over and over again tells them, I'm the one, I'm the one. He gives them you know, his message in many different ways that he's the one. It's clearly expressed in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so his son, he's going to be called the Most High, the Son of God. And this is used throughout uh, the Gospels especially, but even throughout the New Testament to refer to Jesus as this great man, the Son of God in flesh. Now, not only is this, he's going to be called great. He's going to be the Son of God. He's going to have special uh, place amongst all of the people. But it says that at the end of verse 32, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Now, this is very significant because this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We have the Abrahamic covenant all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And under the Abrahamic covenant, in Genesis 12, it's reiterated in uh, chapter 15, chapter 17, 22 of Genesis. But under the Abrahamic covenant, there are three things that God promises to the people. He promises land, which we see uh, the nation of Israel is that promised land that God would give to his people. He promises blessing. We see that in Jeremiah 31, where he makes a new covenant with them, where he's going to write their law in their heart, give them a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. There's this new covenant of blessing and peace that comes to them. But he's also going to give them a seed. He's going to give them uh, a, a fruit that comes forth that's going to rule and reign forever. And this is what we call the Davidic covenant, which is reiterated in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, let me read this covenant for you so we can see what the Davidic covenant has. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 16, it says, From the time that I appoint judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, moreover the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So he's talking to David now about what he's going to do for David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. So there's a forever element to the Davidic covenant that your offspring is going to be on the throne forever, David. Now, there are offspring that are going to raise up that are going to rebel and I will judge them, but I will never cause my love to depart from them. You will have someone on that throne. And if we look now, there's no one on the throne of God. No one sitting on the throne of David, sorry, that is ruling over the people of Israel. And so... Uh, the reign of Jesus has to last. The, the reign of Jesus is going to fulfill that uh, reign that God promised to David. Now, in Isaiah chapter 9, a passage we are all very familiar with, 
Isaiah chapter 9, 6, and 7. We quote this at Christmas quite a bit. It says, For to us a, <clears throat> a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. So there's a future coming child that will be born. A son will be given. The son of God. He will be great and called, be called the son of the most high. And this son will sit on the throne of David. And we have a description there in Isaiah of what that rulership, what the reign of Jesus is going to look like. Now, we can talk about the, the prophecies regarding that. We'll get into that another time and how that is fulfilled and so much. But this is who Jesus is identified even in the very enunciation of his birth. Now, a couple last verses in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah is talking about the righteous branch that will be raised up, that will uh, rule over the people. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So there's a branch or an offshoot from David himself that will rule and will reign. And he's going to reign with justice and righteousness. And he's going to bring salvation to Judah and Israel. It's exactly what we see the mission of Jesus being there as Gabriel is presenting here in Luke chapter 1. So Gabriel's giving this incredible message to Mary. Behold, you're going to conceive, you're going to bear a son, and you're going to name him Jesus. That's your part. Okay? And then God is going to make him great, so great that he's going to be identified as the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. And he's going to sit on the throne of David, and he's going to rule there. And he's going to reign, verse 33, over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. There is a uh, an eternal reign of Jesus. And we could get into the book of Revelation. We see the reign of Jesus that takes place uh, as he judges in chapter 19 and as he uh, creates the new heaven and the new earth in chapter 20. And he sits on the throne there and he's going to reign for all eternity. So Jesus has got a very important specific position, far greater than John the Baptist. And so he's called great and the son of God in that case. Now, Mary, let's go back to her. She asks a very significant question here. Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? She clarifies her status. Now, how can this be? Now, it would be understandable if Mary was married to Joseph at this point and was having intimacy with him. It's easy to see how she would conceive and bear a child and call his name Jesus. That would be no mystery at that point. But she's not been at that place. And she clarifies, I am a virgin. I have not had intimacy with a man yet. The normal way of producing a child has not occurred, so how is it that I'm going to have a child? And so the greatness of God is the focus here rather than the natural process that Mary was focused on. And the angel, verse 35, answers and says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Now, if we contrast that with Zechariah and the encounter that Zechariah had, let's start with that. Mary's response is, how can this be? 
You know, how is this going to happen? I, I don't understand the process forward that God is going to take. Contrast that with Zechariah's response. And Zechariah, uh, just a little bit ago, uh, said in verse 18, how shall I know this? I'm an old man. My wife has advancing years. In other words, he says, how do I know you're telling me the truth? How do I know that something's going to happen? Zechariah wasn't discounting that God could do something, but he was saying, I'm not sure I believe you. <laughs> it was a unbelief that motivated Zechariah to ask for a sign. Okay, And so Zechariah was responding out of doubt. This really isn't going to happen because it's too late, angel. You're not getting it. I don't make, tell, show me something that is going to convince me so that I can believe. Now, Mary's response is different because she's saying, how can this be since I'm a virgin? In other words, okay, I understand what you want to do, God. I don't see how you're going to do it. I'm a virgin, but how do you want to do this? And so she is demonstrating a greater faith, even though the question is very similar. The motivation of the question comes from very different areas. Zechariah from unbelief, Mary from belief and faith. And so the response to Mary's question repeats the answer for Mary for greater emphasis and clarity there that she's going to get. He says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. Now, the wording there is similar to Acts 1.8, where the disciples were told to stay in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come and overshadow them, to overpower them. So the Holy Spirit, Mary, is going to come and overshadow you. The Holy Spirit is going to come and do a miraculous work in you. Now, the, the phrase overshadowing there, that he's going to uh, overshadow you. The Most High is going to come and do this. It's also the same term used in the transfiguration in chapter 9, verse 34, where the, the Spirit of God, the presence of God overshadowed the place and they were caught up in the cloud there. And so just as uh, you know, God is doing a miraculous work there. The manifestation of the glory of God is present at the transfiguration. It's present at the filling of the Holy Spirit of the church. It's present in the conception of Jesus as well. So God is the key figure in the birth of Jesus. He's the key factor there. And then the consequence of the Holy Spirit's action is that therefore, because the power of the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you because that's going to happen, the child that will be born will be called holy. That's the consequence. Just as John was set apart from his mother's womb in chapter 1, verses 14 through 17 that we saw last time, Jesus is going to be identified as holy. There's something special about Jesus. He's going to be the son of God. You can't say that he's the son of any other man because only God could have brought about this birth. And so, it's a very significant passage there where Jesus is the Son of God because of the Holy Spirit's interaction with Mary, miraculously bringing forth this child. Now, this is going to have significant repercussions for the identity of the child. Uh, back in verse 32, the child is going to be called great and the Son of the Most High. We've already been told that. Here in verse 35, we see that uh, the child is going to be called holy, identified as separate, the son of God. So Jesus is the son of God, not because he's going to take up the throne of David to fulfill the prophetic uh, promises there in verses 32 and 33. That's not why he's considered the son of God, not why he's uh, identified as that, but he's 
the Son of God because of the miraculous conception with the Virgin Mary. And that's why the virgin birth is so essential, because it gives us an identity of Jesus, and it tells us who he is. And so we need to really hold on to that and really grasp that concept that that the Holy Spirit has brought forth Jesus. It's a continuing theme between the work of the Spirit and the work of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke, whereas the Holy Spirit is empowering and working through Jesus. Now, as we continue on and start wrapping this up, it says, Behold! Uh, Angel Gabriel here is still speaking. He tells Mary, Behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age and has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. So back to the six months in verse 26. Uh, that's our time frame that we've got going on in here. Uh, and then verse 37, For nothing is will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed for her. So the sign that Mary receives from faith is Elizabeth's pregnancy. The sign that Zechariah received from unbelief or lack of faith was muteness. (laughs) And so Mary's question, how can this be, was one of, Lord, show me how you're going to bring this about, not doubting that you could bring it about. And so um, we get this new information there. Elizabeth had hid herself away. Uh, We saw... um, Back in verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus has the Lord done for me when he's looked upon me and taken away my reproach among the people. And so she had hidden herself away. She was just now coming back into the public light and presenting herself in public again. She's uh, with child. She's well pregnant now, past the danger stages of the early on. Um, the child is, is preserved in her womb and she's ready to present herself and the favor of God publicly. Now, a couple last thoughts here. Mary is described as a relative of Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth, as we saw earlier, is a daughter of Aaron. She's of the priestly line. Uh, Mary is somehow related to Elizabeth. Some say cousin, some say uh, aunt and uncle uh, or, or, or aunt relationship, aunt and, and uh Niece, there's the word relationship. Uh, we don't know exactly what the relationship is, but coming from the line of David uh, through the tribe of Judah, as we know Mary would have been, and from the line of Aaron, as Elizabeth would have been, there was interaction amongst the tribes and amongst the people there. It doesn't take from the class of either of these individuals. Mary is from a distinguished line of Aaron. Uh, I'm sorry, Mary is from the line of Judah. Uh, Elizabeth from the line of Aaron. Uh, And they would have had this mixing of the priestly and rulership classes there in the person of Jesus. And so that phrase, verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. We often take it out of its context to show that God can do anything and God will do anything. This is in reference to God bringing the impossible, opening the womb of that which was once barren. God can do that kind of work. God can do the impossible that nobody else can do. And so it seems to echo those things that were said to Sarah back in Genesis 18, 14. Again, Zechariah and Elizabeth's pregnancy is often compared back to uh, Abraham and Sarah's pregnancy uh, with Isaac. And so uh, there's some correlations there. And so it echoes the words that were given back then that nothing is impossible with God. God can do whatever he wants to do. He's able to accomplish this feat with a closed womb. And he can accomplish what he's proclaimed to Mary. He can do these very things. And then Mary's final words there stand in contrast to those of Zechariah. She embraces the purpose of God without reservation. She doesn't consider the cost to herself personally, and she's in full submission as a servant of God. 
And this is something that, that uh, Zacharias didn't have as he expressed unbelief and had to have that sign of muteness before he fully believed. Mary simply says, I am the servant of the Lord. In other words, I do what the Lord bids me to do. I'm wholly submitted to him. Let it be to me according to your word. In other words, everything you've said, let it come to pass. I fully submit and I fully uh, get that. And so, if you want to read uh, the parallel passage, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, uh, the virginity and purity of Mary is again highlighted in that section. They've not come together in a marital sense. Mary's found with child. Joseph is going to divorce her secretly rather than shame her because that could have resulted in her death for infidelity at that time. But the angel appears to Joseph and, and you know tells him what's going on. And uh, David is reiterated there as a son of David. He's from the tribe of David as well, from that line. He's a just man. He's a faithful man. And the connection to Isaiah 7.14 is explicitly made by Matthew uh, as he focuses on there. And he wants to present the Old Testament Messiah to the Jewish people. And so there's a, a in that passage, there's an additional second statement that Joseph did not know Mary sexually until after the birth. So there's a clear attempt, a clear explanation from both Matthew and from Luke that this birth precludes any natural pregnancy. This is the supernatural work of God. So the birth of this great child, the son of God, is a work of God through the life of this young girl who had found favor, grace. She was called for this special purpose. And so God is doing an incredible work and he's going to bring forth an incredible child. And the rest of the book, we're going to spend delving into this child, the child Jesus. So I pray that you are encouraged today. I pray that you were enlightened on the birth of Christ, on the announcement to Christ, who he is and how that's going to come to pass. As we look forward, we're going to spend more time looking at the birth of John, the birth of Jesus, and then the ministry of Jesus and how God is fulfilling his salvation plan through his son. Again, all of this was done that you might have certainty, that you might know these things about Jesus. Jesus is the son of God, distinct and special and divine and separate from all other humanity and able to save to the uttermost. So be encouraged by that today. Be challenged by that to live out your life for him in full submission, just as Mary was, and see what impossible things God does in your life, uh, around you and in you as an individual. So God bless you guys. Check out our website, mathetide.org. Like and subscribe to this podcast. You can check us out on many different um, avenues of social media, uh, on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, so on, where we're doing daily devotionals, and a lot more information and ministry from Mathetai around the globe as we train people and train pastors to serve the church. So blessings, and we'll see you next time on Mathetai.